So to Yen Ming and Angela O, oh, welcome to the new school at Commonweal. Thank you. Thank Glad you. to have you both here. Uh, tu Yin Ming is known as Tutu, and he is a Los Angeles-based Taiwanese artist who has created an internationally exhibit acclaimed body of work in fine art, photography, and film. And after a decade of success with his Maoology and Timeless series, which uh, gained a lot of acclaim in the US and Asia and Europe in the 90s, he took a sabbatical from painting to look inward, and a new body of work began to emerge six years ago. We have examples of that here, a series of spiritual portraits in silver pencil on blue paper that reveal the essence and inner qualities of their subjects. And this uh, series is, uh, Tutu's new blue series called From Timeless to Infinity, 108 Bodhisattvas. And there will be its first United States opening exhibit here at Commonweal. On what date do we know? Uh, September 27 through 29, 2013. September 27 to 29, 2013. And um, Angela O oh is an equally remarkable partner, companion, fellow traveler were the three words we decided to use to describe the two of you. Uh, Angela has a really interesting background uh, as a uh, attorney and teacher, spokesperson for the Korean American community after the 1992 Los Angeles riots and her position on President Bill Clinton's One America initiative. Uh, she is uh, an attorney. Uh, she uh, became nationally eminent as a spokesperson and mediator for Asian Americans in conjunction with the Los Angeles uh, riots uh, and uh, served on a seven-member advisory panel to the president to look at race, racism, and racial differences in the United States, and has been very involved with uh, uh, presentations and activism related to discrimination and harassment. Uh, she was chair of Senator Barbara Boxer's Federal Judicial Nominations Committee for two years, a lawyer delegate to the Ninth Circuit Judicial Conference, and served as a member of the Federal Magistrate Judge Selection Panel for the Central District of California for three years. Um, her lectures have taken her to all over the world, really, China, Korea, the Middle East, Northern Ireland, and the United Kingdom. And she has published a collection of essays entitled Open, One Woman's Journey. And uh, Angela is an ordained priest uh, in the Zen Buddhist Rinzai sect. So that is a brief introduction to both of you. So Tutu, let me begin with you. Um, we are surrounded sitting here at Commonweal with six of your portraits um, done on blue paper with silver pencil. And I wish our listening audience could see them because um, 
they're really astonishing in the fine detail. How long does it take you to do one of these portraits? Um, it always depends. It depends on uh, what sets of mind, you know. Uh, if, for example, some of the portraits uh, here were uh, drawn in a temple. Uh, a 92 years old uh, African-American woman. Um, it takes three days, up to four or five hours setting. Mm -hmm. um, but if my mind is in a chaotic state and, and I was not very clear, it would take a really long time. So if, for example, that portrait was done in three days, it might take me three weeks to finish. So I think it depends on, you know, how, how crystal, how transparent my mind, you know, at the time when I draw. So, so the, the drawing is a form of meditation for you? Yes. If, if I can contribute, I mean, I, so here's why Angela tags along with Tutu. He doesn't use words, and I'm a words person. So let me just expand upon what he is trying to share with you because the work is remarkable. Um, it is a manifestation of one's meditation and meditation practice. That's what you see on the paper. Yes, there are likenesses and images and there's a process. You know, he has to meet the person so he feels the energy of that person. Um, typically, he'll take a series of shots. He used to only use his Leica. Now he uses, you know, the 21st technology, century technology of the iPhone, and it actually is just as good. He was doubtful in the beginning when he was using it, but he's found that it's a perfectly adequate tool. And um, typically the subject will act toward a camera, but those aren't the pictures he ends up selecting. I've seen this over and over and over again over the years. It's typically the first or second shot that he gets of a person. Before he knows anything much about them, you know, fr from the informational part, the mind part, it's just the feeling. That's when he gets the picture that he wants to use. A couple of these were commissioned. Nella, for example, the one on the far right here, 97-year-old woman, and her daughter is a law professor. Nella is an immigrant. Um, she comes from the Caribbean islands, but she's the first black woman to graduate from NYU with a degree in economics. And before she died, her, her daughter wanted an image and she wanted a particular kind of image. Um, so to shot Nella, she's living in a home in uh, LA uh, for, for elders. And he spent probably 40 minutes with her, took some shots, um, selected a couple and Actually, because that particular portrait was done while he was living at the temple in Honolulu, um, there was something about the energy of being in the temple and this woman's energy that came together. And what would have usually taken him almost a month maybe to do came out in three days. Hmm. Um, and, and what he does typically is he sits for 45 minutes. When he's home, he sits for 45 minutes. Then he enters and puts pencil to paper. Then when he's finished, and sometimes the cycle is 20 minutes, sometimes it's several hours where he'll just keep going, keep going, keep going. 
But whenever he's, quote, finished for that day, he steps back um, and sits again for another 30 minutes to close the session with the subject. And when these subjects are in formation, he um, covers them, um, you know, so that there's just a white sheet over the place where he's been working until he's finished. Once he's finished, he then gets into the polishing, and when it's really finished, he signs it. So these, these, by the way, are not for sale. They are his gift to humanity. That's how he characterizes what he's doing with this 108. They are one body of work, but 108 separate images. And how many have you done so far? Uh, I think that I've never really counted, you know, uh, because my the whole purpose is not to... Actually, I don't usually calculate in time or this and that, but I think probably close to 80 or something. Mm. Yeah. So, no, you have more than 80. I've counted. Oh, she counted. <laughs> I count. He doesn't count. I count. What yeah. did you say, Angela? It's over 80. He's over 80. probably close to 90 at this uh -huh. point. But the real thing for me is is that <clears throat> is really I, I used the drawing process as part of the sacred journey. So the really is not ended by finish the drawing. You know, I actually I didn't see. I don't really usually think those are, are art. You know, I just say, well, that's reflecting on my mind. But can I leave after the fin after the drawing? Can my mind even calmer? Can I be more aware? Can I be more awakened? And so that's really is about. So can I carry the sacredness in me, within, and carry on to living? You know, those are really important to me. You know, on your, your website, there are some wonderful um, responses from people whose drawings you've, you've done. And... Um, so here's a, a, a Zen priest named Gordon Green, his response. I saw myself dead for the first time. As, Zen, as a Zen priest, we may think of ourselves as dead uh, uh, because that's embedded in the koan training. Um, but uh, when he saw the portrait, he had the actual sensation of being dead for the first time. Uh, and uh, another uh, gentleman, Reverend Bob Nakata, who's a Methodist pastor and former Hawaii state senator, he says, hopefully without being immodest, I was amazed at Ming's portrait of me. It revealed a wise person of great but reserved power. I now understand why people have wanted me to step forward as a leader, why they want me to lead. My self-image had been of a quiet, somewhat aloof personality whom few would be inspired to follow. The portrait has helped me to accept myself as a leader and accept leadership as a gift from God to be used judiciously for good. I guess that is how I have used it. And what strikes me, I mean, when you look at the portraits, um, and Kira Epstein and I saw them for the first time down in Santa Cruz about what, six months ago or a year ago, or something? Year. Yeah, at, an, at a, a uh, conference where we met the two of you of the Whitman Institute, which brought us all together. When you look at them, the, and uh, I'll tell the story, because when I walked into the room, at, you know, there must have been 100 people in the room, and, and um, 
Tutu was standing over by the window on the far side of the room, and I thought to myself, with all due respect to all the other wonderful friends in the room, I thought to myself, that's the only person I want to meet here, you know. And so I went over and introduced myself, and then, then uh, uh, Angela and Tutu had an exhibit of these uh, amazing drawings, and we were just stunned. Uh, Kira Epstein and I were just stunned by uh, the power of them. And so now one of the ones that Tutu has here is one, I didn't know he was doing this, of me. That, um, and I had an experience very similar to the two that I just described here because, um, um, because uh, when I looked at it, I, what I saw, what I said to you, Tutu, was mm. it's as though somebody had drawn my soul. It's as though somebody had drawn my soul. And, it, it, and, and the experience was that you had seen in me what I have not been able to see clearly in myself. And therefore, as f uh, with both of these other people, it, it makes me want to uh, embody that more deeply. Mm. It makes me want to come from that place in myself. Uh, in other words, you saw a beauty in me which to me uh, I, I don't see as clearly. And um, so it's a very powerful experience. And so it was interesting to me that other people have had that same experience when they had their portraits done of a sense of uh, being seen at a very deep level. I mean, well, yeah, I think you only can see it, the, the seer, the person who sees it, has to be in the right mind. Right. And that right mind has to be empty. Right. Okay, when Bob Nakata, when I met him, I hardly know him. Right. Okay, I, just, I met him like two or three minutes, I saw his energy, I said, can I take a picture? Mm -hmm. I didn't do the portrait about, about two years later. Mm-hmm. With uh, the golden green, I I just saw him walking in the temple. He walked like a nobleman. I thought, whoa, this person carries a, a very unique energy of the vibration. And I said, well, can I take a few shots of you? And that was it. And I finished the project uh, maybe a, a couple of years later. And he was invited to... Uh, uh, called Winston Chester Center where uh, Angela was uh, ED to have a seminar about life and death. So I just put that portrait outside and, and that's what he first time saw it. So. Mm -hmm. And that was his reaction. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, I, for me, I felt being an artist, probably the, as artist and as human being, the most important thing is can you be a channel? And to be a channel, you have to purify your mind. Mm -hmm. And I think that if the work had some, have reflecting on I think that I feel, you know, maybe that's, that's okay. Mm -hmm. so. In, in our uh, meditation practice, it's about being uh, mushin, they say. Uh, no mind, which doesn't mean you're an airhead. It just means 
there, you know, things flow as they will naturally. It's just as they are. But there's no you. So in other words, when you see an Ansel Adams, you always know an Ansel Adams because Ansel Adams is in every Ansel Adams, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So um, with a, what I think, too, is trying to uh, express is when he goes in now, because there are some portraits that are of this kind that he did before he got deep into the meditation practice. I mean, he's always, as long as probably 25 years, been meditating, but not in this particular form where the object is to um, really go away bit by bit by bit. So there's no person asking. There's nothing. There's no artist drawing. It's just what happens at a certain point is uh, he becomes, uh, I don't know what the English word, I guess best word, he's almost channeling. There's just an energy that's coming, and he's just singing with the pencil on the paper, the sound. And then, um, you know, when he's tired, he stops, and that's it. That's the end for that session. Sometimes scheduling, for example, when he was working a regular job at uh, UCLA, he had to be at work at a certain time. So, okay, so then you have to schedule things. But now we're in a period where there's no place we must be. So if he starts working, he just works until he's finished. And whenever that is, it depends on the day, on the energy, whatever. So the things that are coming out right now are really... Uh, different. You can feel a difference from the older, uh, earlier work, but it's all still one the same. So well, it'll all be brought together the same. In, in 2013, you'll see everything together. I think that the early stage of work, before I started really take meditation very seriously, is more about self-healings. It's, it's about my uh, gratitude to a friend who had helped me when I was suffering or when I was in a difficult time. So I used uh, to draw those faces to thank them, you know. Or, you know, I was, you know, I have, you know, all kinds of, uh, uh, or I have some anger, I rage, and I would try to channel this energy out to a portrait. But um, after I take the zazen, the sitting, then it's different kinds of mind to go into draw because I'm no longer thinking about my own personal suffering, you know. Um, I want to enter to, in Zen we call samadhi. You know, samadhi is, samadhi only you can enter by physically set as deep and as quiet, as calm as possible. And when you enter that, something would happen. And not always happen to every single portrait. So, and I think that those portraits that had um, can deeply reflecting that person, that particular person, usually is when when the when when the channel is really tapped into real, real deepest silence. Mm-hmm. Tutu, you have a, a very interesting uh, uh, history. You were uh, born on Taiwan, yes? Yes. Yeah. And your ancestral lineage was, I, I learned from the Hakka people of, yeah. of China, mm-hmm. 
who were very, an, a very ancient people who are now a minority in all the states of China. Is that yes. correct? Yes. Hakka is, it translated in English means guest people. Guest. Guest. G-E-S-T. Guest. Means that you, you know. Hakka is um, the original, uh, the early Han people ran away from Mongolian invasion during the North and South Dynasty. Mm-hmm. They have three, and during the course of a couple hundred years, they have three migration to, from the North, from, from the like Xi'an, the ancient capital area, to Anhui province, to Sichuan province, then going to Guangdong province, and then you know, to Taiwan, to oversee. So if you look at the, the early uh, Hawaiian Chinese immigrants, most of them are Hakka. And you said Mao was surrounded by Hakka people. Chow and Lai was Hakka. Yeah, Chow and Lai was Hakka, and uh, Judah, one of his generals, uh-huh. and Ye Jian Yin, another you know, military uh, general, also a Hakka. Uh, so uh, just mean that uh, the Hakka people, because they are minority, and so they also had the tradition to preserve their own old culture. So they are very, for our survival, they have to be very aware of their own education and their political survival. Mm-hmm. And you became a, a judo champion in Taiwan, yes? Yeah. And you were one of Chiang Kai-shek's bodyguards, is that yes. correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and to this day, you, you carry yourself in a certain way of very centered way, shall we say? Yeah. Well, uh, to be somebody, to be a, a you know, Chiang Kai-shek is the, uh, the 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 person who unified China before Mao, mm-hmm. right? And so he is, you know, a monumental person, right? And so, so to to be dragged into that situation to protect him. For me, it's kind of absurd because you're being brainwashed to protect a person. Mm-hmm. Right? So, um, to me, come out of that experience are actually is for me to question the existence of, you know, because you you could be during the process of protecting. You have to you you could be like want to die for him. You know, you're being propaganda to protect him. You know, to respect him. I remember that the night he died, I was on duty. Really? Yes. It was 1975, uh, April 3rd. And it was night ship, and I had to, uh, it was noon to two. And the weather was kind of strange. Usually at that time, April, there's a kind of, a very warm, heated wind blowing, and suddenly rain, you know, showering rains, and I, and then suddenly I have um, the limousine, and and you know, taxi comes in. I have to check every person to the ID, and I realize a lot of them are general and you know, some politician, you know, important people. So, and I have to call my captain to say, well, uh, the sir is passing. And I was, you know, everybody was crying, mm. you know, generally, because at that time, you're my, you think that, you know, somebody in that 
you know, caliber. And so on. So you, you knew him personally at some level? Well, I think that um, I would say, yeah, you know, he would come in to check out food and check out hen, you know. Even Matt and John, too, you know, you, you were. Um, and I, not only that, we had to protect uh, Jiang Jingguo, his son's children. What know? was he like as a as a? He's, he, I, he's like a real kind old grandfather. Mm-hmm. He, he, there's something about him, you know, he's radiant, he, you know, he's, mm-hmm. he's somebody you, you respect. Mm-hmm. You know? So there was an intrinsic respect for him. Yes, uh, absolutely. Based on who yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's a kind, he's, you know, he's a very... Um, so what was it like to carry that lineage and that experience growing up in Taiwan and becoming a judo master and protecting Chiang Kai-shek, what was it like to carry that when you came to the United States? How did, what was the experience of, of being in the United States like for you? Well, I think that the reason why I came is uh, at the time, early 80, uh, Taiwan's still under martial law. Right. And uh, my military experience was very, very traumatic. In what way? Uh, because I had to train to shoot M16, a 4x5, so much, mm-hmm. my ear damaged. Uh-huh. So I have this noise, mm-hmm. you know, noise in my ear. Mm-hmm. It took me six years to hear it. Mm-hmm. So I was, and, and during the military, I also suddenly wake up and realize that I had to empower myself Mm -hmm. to kind of escape this kind of ridiculous situation. Did that happen all at once, or was it a gradual process? Um, You you mean the... The uh, waking up. It was was, uh, a graduate, Mm -hmm. because the more I see the ridiculous situation I'm into in the military, and, and the physical suffering and the mental suffering. And, and not only that, the people around me suffering. Mm-hmm. Because when I went home, I want to study, I want to go to college. And um, my sister and my brother suffer because I get mad because I hear this song. So I was become a monster mm-hmm. out of the military experience. And also, um, my father died when I was very young, 13. My grandmother committed suicide when she was in 22 years old. And all that tragedy. And then in Taiwan at the time, because of martial law and the censorship, it's a very close society. And so I was really want to leave the country and come here. Did you know you wanted to be an artist at that time or not? At that time, I just want to study film. I see. Yeah, and television. Mm -hmm. So. so you came to the United States, and, and did you study film? Yes, I went to UCLA and uh-huh. studied film uh-huh. and television. And, and what, what was the immigrant experience like for you in the early years? What was it like to come here? It was tough. You know, I, I, was, uh, I was in my first uh, city I, I came was Berkeley, mm-hmm. and Berkeley was... Uh, you know, um, sort of for me, it's a cultural shock mm-hmm. because I never seen real artworks. You know, I, 
as a Telegraph Street was wonderful with Cody and Mo and all of the mm -hmm. great bookstores and can see real artwork. I said, oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And also I met a lot of uh, exile from Central South America and, and, uh, and South Africa and, you know. How so, were you making a living? Okay, I, well, I started washing dishes mm -hmm. and then I was uh, hired I went to a Chinese restaurant to be a waiter. I got fired the first day, and then uh, I went back, and they fired me again for weeks. And then I went back three months later. I I, I keep my job, you know, and from a waiting table to become a printer actually in uh, Berkeley, mm -hmm. printing the big poster, mm -hmm. and uh, then I study photography in in Berkeley, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in the lab. So, mm -hmm. so. Uh, so, yeah, it was not easy because I, at the time I was graduated at one of the best universities in Taiwan, and I was already executive producer in the 60 Minutes of Taiwan. Mm. So I was kind of, you know, carry that in here, and suddenly I have to start from zero, mm. you know, to, you know, wash the dishes and, yeah. and all that stuff. So. It's very hard. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's very valuable. Mm -hmm. Angela, tell us a little about your life experience. Uh, you, uh, you obviously, uh, were you born in the United States? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, I was, um, uh, I just want to add something about Tu. He's being a little modest. So mm -hmm. Tu went to the top university in his country. It would be like going to Harvard mm -hmm. after his military service, at which point he studied contemporary history. Mm -hmm. And he um, put General Chiang Kai-shek into perspective, a broader perspective, which was for him at another level traumatic, but it was his path and he accepted it. And also, you know, as a boy, he knew he loved art and had a talent. All of his teachers saw it very early in his, you know, when kids draw little stick figures on the, the board, he was already drawing in three-dimensional images. And so... Um, he always wanted to be an artist, but he, his father dying when he was 13 made that impossible because his mother had been raised really to be a wife and a mother and was one of um, eight, eight children or 12? Uh, 11. 11 children. And so um, when the father died, of course, the family declined from being a very privileged family, because the father was uh, one of the few at that time who had gone to college, university, was an engineer, and he headed their power plant in their town. And um, the mother was left with four small children, he's the eldest of four, and ended up working in a lumber factory. She never remarried, she was 33 years old at the time, very devout Buddhist. She never remarried, but she raised her four kids um, as a lumber factory worker. And that was a huge shift for her, a huge shift for the family. And um, he had to stop thinking about ever being an artist. And so his mother insisted that he would, you know, be an architect or a professor or something like that, uh, none of which he ended up doing anyway. Um, she was wise enough, I mean, not educated in a formal way, but she took her firstborn son to, to a fortune teller when he was born. And that fortune teller, because of certain markings on his body, told the mother that her son would not stay home and that she shouldn't try to stop him. He's a traveler. And indeed, that's really been his life. He's traveled, you know, we've just talked about here to the U.S., but he's been to Tibet. 
He's been to India. He's been along the Silk Road. He's traveled Nepal. He's traveled much of um, Europe, uh, Guatemala, Brazil. He's been to all of these places, always um, in pursuit of, of art. Uh, he's not just a person who does these kinds of portraits. He's a photographer, a filmmaker, a painter. He has not yet moved into three-dimensional work in sculpting, but that probably will happen at some point. Um, but his he always accepts whatever. So when he came to the United States, he was married at the time to a woman who was, had been studying at Berkeley political science. Um, she was a student of his, uh, spoke fluent Mandarin, and blonde hair, blue eyed. So that's, that combination was kind of surprising. Um, but she uh, was studying at Berkeley, which is why they ended up here. And, um, you know, at that point, he was able to enter into studying. Every art that he does now is, you, you need to understand, was self-taught. He's never taken an art class. He's never, you know, studied art in a formal way because he um, has something in him that rejects people who are titled teachers. So he, he's self-taught in almost everything. For myself, I'm almost the opposite. I was born and raised here um, in the U.S., in Los Angeles. My, my mother's mother uh, immigrated here just because I was born. So I really have been the um, recipient of what we could call unconditional love, right? It's because my mother and father came here as students right after the Korean War, the intent being to go back. Um, to Korea, but my father had a um, sponsor here who wanted him to stay. And this tells you a little bit about how much things have changed in my lifetime. You know, it took him two weeks to get his lawful permanent residency. <laughs> he just walked to the county building and there was a federal office there and filled out the papers and his uh, professor signed the document and two weeks later he was a lawful permanent resident. I mean... Things have changed. But uh, I was born here, and I'm the eldest of four. Tutu is also the eldest of four. So we both kind of understand that role in family structure. Um, he walks a different way than what many families would hope, the eldest of four, especially the first son of a first son of a first wife. He also didn't tell you his grandfather was one of these men who had five wives mm. in that era. And his grandmother was the first of five. And then his father was the first son of the first wife. So that has a lot of meaning in our cultures. My family, what's interesting is, um, grew up in a time, my parents, where the Japanese colonized the uh, South Korea and made it mandatory for all children to be taught uh, Japanese as their first formal language. It was actually forbidden to speak Korean and to wear Korean clothes and to have any vestige. So what the Japanese were trying to do at that time were uh, good cop, bad cop. In Formosa, now Taiwan, it, they colonized in a way using the carrot. And in Korea, they colonized in a way using the stick. And, but in both places, during that, our parents' generation, and our parents happened to be the same age, which is kind of interesting, they um, spoke Japanese in their formal education. So if our parents were to meet, 
Well, his father wouldn't, but my father and mother and his mother, if they were to meet, they could not speak their native languages, but they could communicate perfectly, as I am with you right now, in Japanese. So the, the colonizing language would be the language that would build that bridge between them. And they actually would even, because they were about the same age when this was happening in terms of the training and education, they, their cultural reference and comfort level would be um, there more with the Japanese than their respective languages. Tutu at home is still called Aki for Akira. That's what the, his name is, Akijang. His younger siblings um, came a few years later such that the effect of the Japanese occupation was worn down a little bit. Um, in my family, always we were spoken to in Korean until we started school. So, um, and it happened that both my grandfathers are ministers, were ministers, Methodist, Methodist, yeah. Methodist ministers. And so there's something in my lineage that called to me about uh, walking a different way um, than, you know, purely a work professional kind of way. Tu and I both meet in our 50s realizing that, oh yeah, this is the way we're supposed to walk. So we refer to ourselves as fellow travelers. Mm. <laughs> Partners, companions, fellow travelers. What's most striking to any of us listening to you, Angela, is that here you've had this very, very eminent career as an activist and uh, an attorney, a teacher, a lecturer, done a lot of remarkable things. I really recognized in, uh, in a series of fields that uh, uh, human rights, um, race issues, gender issues, and so on. And so now you have partnered with Tutu, and what's striking when one meets you and hears you is the degree to which um, you seem to seem you seem to hold that a, a large part of your life work or purpose now is to make Tutu's work visible in some sense. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's really fair. I oh. think um, you know all the things that people um, share in terms of story, they don't seem very real to me from where I stand today. I mean, there are real things. Like, I listen to people introducing me at things, and I think, really? Is that who I am? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, those are the things I've done. And they were quite remarkable. As a lawyer, I was a criminal defense lawyer. So really, my job ultimately was to humanize my client. It was not to, quote, get them off. You know, when, when you are in a situation where you're being indicted and criminally charged, it sometimes there's been a misunderstanding and, you, you know, you truly are innocent. But oftentimes the job is about uh, humanizing a, a person who is so easy to hate. And the system hates, the prosecutor hates, the government hates. I mean, it is, I'm using a strong word because... The, the virulence when you're on the receiving side is really, it feels like that. There's just no recognition of the humanity that exists here. And I came to see that, you know, no individual ends up being in the place that they are by themselves. Other things are, come into play. And yes, judgment of the individual too. But 
we have to put that in context, right, especially when you're in a system like the justice system. Um, my work politically, really, I never wanted to be engaged politically. I, in fact, you know, I'm not even listening to the debates that are supposed to go on tonight because really there's... This is the presidential debate. The presidential debate, debate because, uh, you know, I don't find any truth there. It's not helpful. It just makes me angry. So why put myself in that situation? I follow it. I vote. And I express my point of view when asked, but it's not my life at this point in the way that it was. My political engagement came about because an ethnic community uh, found itself torn apart in 1992 in L.A., and most of it was limited or non-English speaking. And there are very few second-generation Korean-Americans that have the kind of training I do, that is, as a trial advocate. You know, I'm not a research lawyer. I, I speak to juries. That's what I did when I was practicing. And I like that. That's my space. So um, when the crisis was happening and the media was on, the president at the time of the Bar Association was a corporate lawyer, and he was very uncomfortable speaking. But people wanted to hear from lawyers in the community. So I just appeared. I was the vice president at the time, or the incoming president. And because I had been active around civil rights, I had been active around community organizing with women's groups, um, I understood what had just happened in terms of the implosion in L.A. I understood the failure of the justice system. I knew the judge that, you know, was on that case. I understood uh, Sunjadu, which just preceded the King beating case. And it was a Korean store owner who shot Latasha Harlins and she died. Voluntary manslaughter was the result, and she got probation. I understood that the LAPD was paying millions of dollars to plaintiffs in police brutality cases who had either suffered permanent injuries or had died. You know, so uh, and I also understood the finance um, uh, uh, financial district because I was a defense lawyer in private practice. So I didn't blanch asking for six figures for a retainer at the time. I watched my boss do it. That's what it took to run a practice, and people paid it. So I, I could do it, and it, it didn't bother me ever. Um, and, I, and I was brought up in, in this culture, which I look at now, the, prof the profession that you know, said, yes, paying you know, $600 an hour for someone's time is reasonable. And uh, of course, now I realize, wow, that's like, talk about a delusion. <laughs> The whole justice system, reality by agreement, right? So um, I think karmically it was meant to be that I have that as my training, actually, before I met Ingming too, and before I encounter what he's all about. I really believe that, I think, um, because it's just not a coincidence, for example, that we're here at Commonweal. When I was a, a graduate student in public health, which is a part of my past that I don't talk about very much, but I, I did my MPH. I'm a dropout from the DRPH program. Um, I uh, read work by Naomi Remen about her. And I used to think, I'm going to meet that lady someday. I don't know, maybe where, but then I forget about it for many years. And then one day I meet this guy named Mike Lerner, and he's talking about this place, and I have this vague memory... And then he says, oh, yeah, I know Naomi. Have you met Rachel yet? I mean, uh, excuse me, Rachel. Well, Rachel, Naomi, but have you met her yet? No, I haven't. 
Well, we'll have to get you together. Yeah, I have her books, however. Okay. <laughs> I have her books. So, in fact, when I was in some of my deepest moments of depression, this is an interesting thing. I was looking for something to read, and uh, it was her books, mm. Kitchen Table Wisdom and My Grandfather's Blessings. Mm-hmm. Is that That's it? right. Yeah, that I picked up, and I found her writing to be very accessible and true. Mm-hmm. But... Um, so when I meet Tu Ying Ming, it was when I was teaching a class at UCLA. He was just this little guy in the corner working on getting publications out for the Asian American Studies Department. Very quiet, hardly ever said anything. And a mutual friend of ours who's a poet introduced us just saying, oh, this guy's a really serious student of meditation. You should meet him. So... Um, you know, I greeted him. He didn't like me very much. He thought I was arrogant, flaky, airhead, all the things, you know. <laughs> and uh, then one day he said, well, if you like to see my work, you can come to my studio and see it. And I said, oh, sure. And what was really weird is the, the place where I was meditating with another group of people from Chozenji was a block from his studio. So it would have been very easy for me to go there. But three times I flaked out on him. And finally he just wrote me off and said, this woman's like, forget it. But then the third time I did go and, and I saw the work and I realized, oh no, this is a very serious, he's not just another guy in LA who says he's an artist. <laughs> this guy's really an artist, but there's something more there. So as I got to know him more, I realized that this work has to emerge because we're in an era now where words are failing us. That's just the reality. The more words actually, the greater the misunderstanding it seems. And there was a period in time, I think, when misunderstanding was going to happen and the cost of that could be absorbed. But I think we're living in a time when uh, the more misunderstanding, um, the more devastating the results could be. So I think we're entering a period in which artists and musicians and poets, um, people who can express things that are very deep and shared in terms of humanity, have to emerge. Um, Because the people who use words um, are failing. Does it ever occur to you as an attorney and advocate that what you're doing now is the deepest and most skillful advocacy of your life? That's a really good one. (laughs) Perhaps it is. I don't know. No, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but perhaps that's so. Mm. Yeah, could be so. Tutu... I wish our, our listeners could could see the work because um, it's very powerful and um, and as Angela was saying, you're completely self-taught in all the arts that you've done, but the level of skill um, that goes into making these astonishingly finely drawn paintings and and then uh, drawings and then your capacity to go to a place of emptiness or whatever however you describe it and 
and see something in someone and then take a photograph and then usually working from a photograph, is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Usually working from a photograph, but nonetheless, you are, the photograph does not remember the energy that transpired between you and that person when, when you met. So the photograph is what they call an aide memoir. It's a, an, an assistant for memory. Yeah. But what's going on is that you have held some energetic perception that enables you to do something that when the person who you have drawn sees it, there's a shock of um, not so much of recognition of having been captured in a direct way, but having been seen more deeply than one sees oneself. Well, because, okay, the picture, the picture is mechanic. And, but when you actually create that connection, that is the beginning of karma, okay? So the, the mechanic photography just, just put an input, right? To say, okay, this is the blueprint. And I never know that, I know that a lot of great artists, you know, I know, you know, like de Kooning would be drinking at night and then we attacked, you know, on the canvas and, and Jackson Pollock, you know, will be, you know, they will be drinking, you know, they'll be drunk and they will be free and feel free and to, to do that. And I find the most profound freedom is silent. And I think that only probably people who really have really practiced meditation for a long period of time understand how powerful that silence can provide. It, it provides a space that when you and the, and the subject, there's no division anymore. That's where silence really provides quality silence. So I, I always feel like in that space, it's effortless. There's a total freedom in it. And it's really not me. I knew that it's not me. It's not that ego is doing it. There's something. You know. And that is not a co cooperation, only you and me. There's something else. It's not Mike Lerner and Tutu. There's something beyond that when you, in, you, when you enter that silence. And that something magic happened. And I have been, again and again, experienced that profoundly. And that's made me feel like, wow, there's something there. You can't really explain it with words. So now you've done 80 of these, a little bit more or less. How many years has that taken, those 80? Probably more than six years. Six years. Yeah. So what has the effect been on your consciousness of doing 80 of these um, it's It's huge works. because it really humbled me. You know, it's really, the, the really profound experience is, is to be genuinely humble, <laughs> you know, because you realize, whoa, okay, you can be, you can show it all, you can do other type of art that way, but then let's say, let's do a reverse. Let's go, go inside yourself and go to the inner peace. And there's a some, something happen. 
And I think for me, that's something really, I don't know how to say it, but I say, well, if that's so interesting, I'm going to do it until, I'm going to find out until my last breath. I don't know what's that. Mm. I'm still looking for it, you know. Mm. So, uh, now, did Angela introduce you to the particular form of, of Buddhist meditation that you both practice? Yes. Yeah. She, she told me when she came to my studio, and she said, well, can you come to my temple? I think you can, you know, you, 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 you enjoy that. Maybe you'll never come back, you know. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that was uh, actually I haven't had any vacation for a long time, and so I said, "Okay, I'll give it a try." So, so I, I uh, actually she bought a ticket, and then so I visited the temple. This uh, was the temple in Hawaii. Hawaii, Kalihi yeah. Valley, yeah. And I was there. The physical experience was very, very powerful. I, I was having a triple, triple epiphany. I burst into tears and crying. I don't know what's going on with me, you know. And that weak experience was, uh, as I would say, I was into hell also up to the heaven because I have to set, the way how they taught me to set is zazen means I have to do like a low, you know, the setting. And it was painful like hell. You know, I'll be sitting there, you know, and the, and and my sweat will be dripping, and I can count my dripping, that and my heartbeat, and that's how painful it is. So, in that one point, I say, "Why am I coming here?" You know, it's it just. But when you're in the sacred space, there's something very powerful and very amazing happen, and and and. Uh, you know, I when I left, that was a you know that was a full moon. The, the night I left, and, and there's a you know also the the uh, rainbow a couple of times, and something's very magical. You know, it's a it's a very beautiful place, and I said, well, I'll probably never come back. You know, that's it. And but something happened. I keep going back there, and so he's going back there in December. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It was uh, the reason why for him I knew it was going to be a match because the spiritual training at Chozenji is through the body. So it's um, martial artists started this temple. They had to have at least a black belt to become uh, members there because it was set up specifically to take you beyond the martial art itself. So... Uh, they taught Aikido, Karate, Tai Chi, Kudo, um, let's see, what else? Oh, Iaido, which is the art of drawing the sword. Um, so that's one aspect, leg one, martial, killing art. Leg two, fine art. So you must, if you're a student there, take a fine art. Calligraphy, setting flower, shakuhachi, um, uh, Ceramics, there's the ceramic studio there. Uh, also, okyo, which is the chanting. So that's the second leg of the stool. And then zazen. So you have to sit. And there's a form. So when we say relax concentration, we don't mean just relax. We mean 
relax. You have a form. What is, what is the lineage of your temple? Um, well, we are told that we have no lineage. There are 92 generations. The sixth patriarch, Huineng, is sort of the lineage. It's Mahayana, Rinzai sect. Um, so 92 generations, and we chant as part of our morning okyo each teacher through which the transmission came. So we have 92 generations, 92 names. So we know there are at least seven ahead of the name, the very first name that begins on Tedai Dempo. But we, um, it started in India, came through China, through the Korean Peninsula, through to Japan. And when I met my teacher, he said, in your generation, Angela, we'll touch the continental United States, what we know as the United States. Most of what's there right now is Soto practice. You're going to be bringing this, you and this next generation. So... It's Zen Ken Sho. So the Zen is the Zazen. The Ken is for Kendo. Martial arts Sho is for Shodo, which is the calligraphy or fine art. So that's the approach to, to just know martial practice as just beastly behavior. To just sit and do fine art is, you know, sort of emptiness, empty practice with not really pushing you to the ultimate duality. So life and death is the ultimate duality, right? We're trying to break through. Um, so the practice toward enlightenment, um, the ultimate is Hote, which is that fat, happy Buddha that you see often in bars, carrying a satchel and a gourd, carrying all of the world's suffering and sorrow with joy, and being so enlightened that you can do the thing that priests never should do, which is engage in you know drinking and that kind of beha- bad behavior. But you can do it, and you're in the marketplace as a beggar with a lot of people around you, smiling and happy and wanting to be around you. You have nothing to give except your being, whatever that is, right? Make people happy. Make people less fearful. Make people, um, you know, feel something that gives them comfort. But you're not giving them a thing, but you're giving them everything, Right? So that's the practice in a nutshell. And when Tu came, I knew he would connect because our main building in most uh, monasteries, there is martial arts training hall somewhere, but in this monastery, it is the main hall. The martial arts training hall is the main hall. And that's where visitors, like male visitors, um, will sleep in the dojo, the martial arts training hall. For some people, the energy in there is too intense and they can't sleep and it's very... He slept like a baby from day one. He walked in, he knew the space because of his training. There's calligraphy in there by the founder. He could you know, connect with the calligraphy because he also does calligraphy and he could feel the energy. And the windows all face where the rainbows in the skies come, uh, move. So he could, he could see it at you know, two in the morning and three in the morning, he could see the stars, he could see the moon. And in the early morning, he could see the, the rains and the rainbow. So that happened to him over and over again in that five-day period. And it was difficult for him because he had never sat in any formal way. His idea of meditation was just to sit quietly somewhere. So now he had to sit in a certain form. You're not permitted to move. You know, you really shouldn't even breathe very loudly because it bothers other people. You shouldn't eat certain foods a couple days before coming there because even your body smell will disturb other people. It's all about being sensitive. So 
when he came, he tried to comply and he would, I saw him. He was literally trembling, but he sat for the whole 45 minute cycle. Then he'd get up and limp around, you know. Finally, my teacher came over and said, maybe you should put him on a chair. I said, no, he'll ask if he needs a chair. He stayed the whole week like that. And then at the airport, as we're coming back to the continent, he says, as he's sort of lying back, so you didn't tell me you were taking me to hell. I thought I was going to a retreat. <laughs> but he went back, you know. He, I didn't force him to go back. He asked me, so do they have yeah. us? So I thought it was, you know, the vacation become vocation. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Well, let's open it up to any questions or comments from uh, the folks who are here with us. Any reflections? Anybody want to ask anything? What's the significance of the 108? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So in Buddhism, the number 108, it's, uh, it has symbolic value, but uh, the infinite, it's infinite, uh, stands for the infinite. So 108 also is the number of beads on the juzu, which is the, you'll see that, I think Michael has one on. You'll always see 108 on the juzu that the priests carry. Um, it's the infinite ways in which we as human beings suffer. So greed, avarice, suspicion, doubt, all those things that uh, um, we carry as, you know, who we are. Um, he knows he'll never stop making the blue. These are images that'll never be sold and they'll never be broken apart if he has anything to do with a say about it. He would like to gift this. This is his gift to humanity, this work. So it, it, it would be like you would never take somebody's finger and give it to someone, right? So this, these should stay together and whoever receives it should think of it in terms of a way to uh, find resources to train the next generation of people who are trying to find their way spiritually. That's, that's our articulation of our hope for these images, but we don't know. You know, they may get destroyed. I lost 11 of them once. They were stolen at the airport in Honolulu. Yeah. No, and I even saw the videotape of the woman who picked up the portfolio. She had two young children with her, so I don't really know how she would have explained what her behavior was at that moment. It was at a rental car agency, and I saw the video. And um, there's just no way to track it. So the one person who we got a beat on denied that he was traveling with a woman. So we don't know. So you never know, you know. His attitude, I, of course, was sick about it. Uh, I was traveling alone at the time and wanted to show the images to the Zen masters at Chosenji. And... I was just sick about it, flying back to L.A. And I called him, and his response when I reached him at UCLA was, what did you say? <laughs> and I said, I lost, I lost these 11 images. And he said, oh, well, maybe we should meet after work. So we met, and I was feeling terrible, and he just stopped me. And he said, okay, I already forgave you a long time ago, but we have to get tickets to get back to Hawaii to look for them. And I said, well, they're gone. I saw the lady take them, and, you know, what use is it to go back to Hawaii? And he just said, I forgave you. Maybe that's the karmic destiny, because after all, it's just markings on a piece of paper, and I have many more images to produce. But 
If your child got lost, would you just say, oh, they're lost? Wouldn't you at least try to go look for the child? So I said, okay, I get it. So we flew right back and uh, contacted the attorney general's office, the airport police, the car rental, threatened lawsuits. And ultimately, we both realized, you know, this is a waste of energy. Let's just let it go. This was the, as he puts it, this, that was the destiny of those pieces, right? To, mm. In a way, right? Mm. Yeah. So. Yes, Mimi. Um, I think I heard you say that there, he'll, never let, he'll never let go of the blue. Meaning that he won't ever stop doing the, this particular form. It will be a practice that he'll have. Always in blue. No, no, no. Well, no, I, I, no. I, no he's I, done red. Yeah, well, <laughs> okay. She, she just put uh, my mind into her mind. But, uh, well, no, no. I, I think that anything can possible. You know, I think that my biggest learning from this process is, you know, I don't have much attachment with work. So I can move in any direction tomorrow, you know. Um, you know, um, 108 doesn't mean I have to finish 108. It just means, you know, it's just infinite, you know. It's infinite compassion. It's infinite to... Um, uh, the, whole, the whole idea of doing this is I got a job and I said, well, can I do something completely different without any kind of intentional calculation, you know. So I didn't want to think about selling them, I just want to say, well, I have a lot of demon in myself, you know, can I clean it up? I was just using the theory to clean, to clean my own, you know, you know, all these things that are in my mind. And I really think that the work, my real work is not yet born, you know, this is just practice. It's like a, a person polishing a mirror, you know, to me it's that, you know, so, and I'm still young, so, so hopefully I, if I, um, you know, if I can transcend this kind of passion into compassion, I'm sure that the real world will show up. <laughs> we want to, uh, next year when this work is showing, we want to um, think about bringing some of the Maoology pieces, which are huge eight-foot by seven-foot canvases. Oh, wonderful. And he did 50 iconic images of Mao. He'd probably be arrested if he tried to show it in China. But Mickey Mao, Minnie Mao, Meow Meow Mao, Buddha Mao, Tiananmen Square Mao, Androgynous Mao, Mao coming, Mao going, Golden Mao. So these are huge canvases. And um, some of them, uh, one of them, Chop Mao, he did with um, his thumbprint and chop. No, seal. His seal, you know, the Chinese chop. Just thousands of... And the... The portrait of Mao is stunning. It's just like Mao. But then when you look closely, you see it's his chop mark. And then he did another one, just his thumbprint, right? Because all of this is kind of, uh, what do you call that, conceptual? Is it conceptual? Is that conceptual? Yeah, well, I think it's called, I call it ego-based art. You know, it's, it's about searching my personal identity. And so... Yeah. I try to show how smart can I be, you know, with all the things I learned here and all the museum I learned from the school. And so, well, I can, you know, put it together. And, and, and the reason I choose Mao is because I'm too close to Chiang Kai-shek. So I thought, well, Mao would be more interesting mm, to play with it, you know, play yeah. with the sort of postmodern mm. way of using appropriate art, using mm. cultural reference mm. to do that. So. I've seen the images on your yeah. website. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, like, you know, when Tiananmen Square was happening, I was 
at the at the graduate school at UCLA. So I was watching TV, you know. So I thought, oh, I should make one about that. So. Do you know while Tiananmen Square was happening, a friend of ours named Orville Shell, who's mm -hmm. a China scholar, mm -hmm. had a group of extraordinary Chinese dissident intellectuals here at Commonweal. Oh, really? Right here. Wow. And Tiananmen Square happened, and most of them couldn't go home. Wow. So it's just interesting mm -hmm. that that. Mm -hmm. So yeah. any other questions? Um, anybody have one? I was wondering if any of your other work is being exhibited where we could see it. Uh, the, the Ma had exhibit in Belgium. You know, and uh, open in Belgium. Actually, we did an interesting project. Is we put one of the mall, uh, po we, made, we made a poster, and because it was showing a two gallery, and we were thinking doing something. So what they do is a little village. So they post mall image in every village. Mini mall. You know, no, no, just a mall image. You know, sort of kind of a. Uh, so the village actually happened, you know, they wake up in the morning and sing before the opening, you know. So, um, uh, and then people know about myology mm -hmm. because then I would walk into the bar and people say, oh, you're the guy who do the myology. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've been showing Taiwan and uh, actually uh, it was interesting because I was kind of just doing the mao. One day I, I was in school and I said, well, I write on, I, I draw down about 20 ideas of Mao, and I say, well, chop Mao, Meow Meow Mao, Mickey Mao, and all that. So I actually do them. And uh, a friend of mine who came to Los Angeles to come to the comic convention, and he was a good friend of mine. He worked in the comic department. He said, well, next year is 100 year of uh, Mao's birthday. So you should bring this Mao painting to, you know. So that was initiated that way. So, uh, so at the time, in Taiwan, there's a, a lot of, you know, thing about political event, but there's no art event. So, so and the critic was very interesting. But oh, this is about Mao, you know. So, uh, so, so, so critics start writing about it, and scholars start talking about it. So it was, I mean, it's yeah. very striking to look at the difference between the Mao work and this work. It's, yes, yeah. It comes from such a different place in you. Yeah. Uh, very, very striking. Mm -hmm. So let me ask a, a final question of both of you. Since um, synchronistically this is the beginning of the, our official uh, work at Commonweal with the Institute for Art and Healing, and since this is such, to me, a powerful example of the healing power of art, I'd like to ask each of you to just reflect a little on what, for you, the essence of the relationship between art and healing is. I uh, have come to recognize that art itself carries a certain kind of energy, and that actually can be shared. Also, the making of art itself, the process of engaging in that way, can be uh, a, a vehicle through which healing can occur because of the way in which the creativity and the focus and the um, sort of reflecting back 
that happens in the making of art. So um, I think I... You know, I'm a person who cannot draw anything. In fact, I'm the student that, as a child, and I still have this memory of my fifth-grade teacher, Mrs. Norris, picking up my prairie dog drawing and showing it to the class and saying, this is not a prairie dog, right? And then picking up Alex Fife's prairie dog and saying, this is a prairie dog, right? So um, my relationship to art, I think, stems from that experience and memory. I'm 57 now, and I still remember that. Uh, so maybe that was another reason why, you know, when I met a real artist, it really clicked for me or something. I don't know. There's so many stories one can tell, right? But um, for me, you know, art has this very almost mystical um, quality. And so that's it. Thank you. Tutu? Well, I, to me, art begins from self-healing. You know, I think that from my personal experience, I think that the gift that I have allowed me to heal myself and also make me a better person. Now I realize that I, many, many people also have the wonderful, wonderful being that will allow me to manifest their healing. So, so I think that from self-healing, I, I feel like all those wonderful portraits are gave to me so I can manifest that collectively, that, that, that the healing power can transmit from one to another. Mm. Well, Tutu, Tu Yin Ming, and Angela Oh, thank you both for being with us at the New School, and we look forward so much to the opening of 108 Bodhisattvas next year here. So thank you for being thank with you. us. Thank you. Thank you.